From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I think it is incredibly liberating for somebody to learn and discover and hear affirm that you will not always experience God the same way across a lifetime. But if in that moment you imagine that any authentic relationship with God has to always look like that, your 50-year-old self is probably going to be in trouble. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Here on today's program, we're delighted to welcome back James K.A. Smith, He's a popular speaker who has written many award-winning books, including On the Road with St. Augustine, You Are What You Love, Desiring the Kingdom, and Who's Afraid of Postmodernism. He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he holds the Gary and Henrietta Biker Chair in Applied Reformed Theology and Worldview. He was editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine from 2013 to 2018 and is now editor-in-chief of Image, a quarterly journal at the intersection of art faith, and mystery. Today we're talking about his recent book, How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. James K.A. Smith, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Oh, it's great, David. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. So I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. Back in the early 2000s, I had the opportunity to live off and on for a year in Berlin, Germany. And as I was walking around the streets of Berlin, the roads, many of them are made of, of antique cobblestones. And so it, it has a feel of timelessness as you're walking through this very modern city. But I began to notice every once in a while, if you stopped on a corner or if you were walking down a sidewalk, you'd look down and you'd see a certain cobblestone. And instead of it being an old rock, it instead was a little newer and on it was an inscription. And in German, it would say, on this date, let's say, you know, September 17th, 1942, a group of 56 Jewish people were taken to the Birkenau concentration camp from this spot. And so these little things were dotted all over Berlin, these little things where they fit into what looks like an ancient field of cobblestones, but they are intended to have you in this present moment remember something that happened in the past. Now, as I give this image to you, I felt like this would connect with some of the themes that you are trying to begin to unearth for us as readers in your book, How to Inhabit Time. So I'd like to start our conversation here as I give you this sort of remembrance stone process that's happening in Berlin. How does that sound to you? And what would you make of that kind of practice? Yeah, what a fascinating scene you've painted, unsettling. I think you're right. It resonates a lot with the kinds of themes that come up in How to Inhabit Time. What strikes me about it is, of course, it is an act of reckoning in some sense, right? So it's there. there's a degree of intentionality that has uh, generated this curious and strange memorial so that now we are replacing cobblestones with these memorial stones. So there's something about reckoning with a past there that's significant. What also strikes me, though, in the way you're painting the scene is, I wonder how easy it is to just walk over them and never notice, <laughs> right? And part of the challenge, I think, is we are always living on a history. We're living off of a history. We are standing on a history that has preceded us, but it's also so easy to never notice it and to never reckon with it, to never grapple with it, even if 
others are trying to sort of nudge us in that direction. And I think in many ways, as this theme of reckoning is kind of central to the book. Yeah, it's such a fascinating, that would have been a great metaphor in the pages of the book, I think. Well, this came to me as I was reading through your book, How to Inhabit Time. You have a series of quotations from the African-American author, James Baldwin. And it strikes me that your quotations, and there's one here early in the book where he's talking about basically the past is not something distant from us, but rather the past is something that we're carrying with us and shaping, that is shaping us right here and now in this moment. I'm paraphrasing that, of course, but I really felt a parallel between the Baldwin quotations that you were bringing in your book, How to Inhabit Time, and this kind of remembrance stone, almost a stumbling stone, if you will, there on the streets of Berlin. And what I really like about both the Baldwin quote quotation and your connection here with the stumbling stones is that it is easy to walk past the history and pretend like it's not there. And it's easy to simply move on as if all of this stuff is just given for us and we don't need to question it. And I wonder how you think of these Baldwin quotations in terms of your project. What was it that attracted you to James Baldwin's words and how does that fit into and begin to shape what you're doing and how to inhabit time? No, absolutely. But by the way, you're, even you're describing them as the stumbling stone. Wouldn't it have been remarkable? as an aesthetic act to actually make those stones raised just ever so slightly so that people did stumble over them. Because you could, it would almost be like creating the conditions for a performance art piece for everybody who walked. Because what would happen is you would be frustrated. You'd be walking, like you keep stumbling your toe, you keep running into this. But of course, that's exactly the point which is to create the conditions under which you can't just walk over this history. You have to walk into it. You have to be confronted by it. And that's what I found in Baldwin. Baldwin is just so incisive in the way that he shows us that the past, our history is not past, as Faulkner puts it as well, but that it, the past is something that is in us. It's archived in us. And it's easy enough to keep the archives buried in the basement, but that doesn't mean that they're not directing your habits of being. And so what she's emphasizing is this, I think, really prophetic call for the sake of living into a future. You have to unearth all of that. You have to bring up that history that we would rather bury, that we would push off into the corners and into the shadows. You have to raise it up and confront it for the sake of achieving wholeness. I think the spiritual power of Baldwin is that for him, this was never just about the kind of guilt trip. The whole point was to reckon with it and work through it so that you could live differently. Me could live differently into the future. And I just found so much resonant with the prophets in some ways, with the Psalms, in what Baldwin was suggesting there. And it seems, I guess it also kind of reckoned, but it also resonated with some of my own personal experience of grappling with traumas and things like that. So it's, I think it's a suggestive parallel. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith, He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's the author of several books, some of which we've had him on the show before to talk about. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. Well, I think that we've begun to set the stage for what for me was a really bracing moment in your book, How to Inhabit Time. Because as you're talking about these acts of remembrance, and really your suggestion that maybe these stones in the streets of Berlin should have been raised a bit so that we stub our toes on them, you begin to characterize, if you will, two types of Christianity. And one type of Christianity which you are critiquing is a factory for forgetting for not looking at history, and for dislocating us in time. Now, these are my characterizations and my phrasing. You may have a way that you would prefer to say it, but I'd invite you to begin to tell us about what it means to look at and analyze at least a certain wing of Christianity as a location of forgetting. Yeah, and I think 
I'm glad that you appreciated that thread because I, I think there is part of the book is trying to diagnose disordered forms of being in time. So in some ways, you can't not be embedded in time as creatures and you can't not have a history. So the question isn't whether you relate to time, but how. And I think there are two related challenges in these, what I would call kind of crooked forms of Christianity, if you will. One, one is, I, I, as, as you will have noted, I call it a Christianity of no when, right? So in the same way that some people, blockers maybe especially, talk about the myth of having a view from nowhere, as if you could have a standpoint or a purview that isn't conditioned by your context and your location. So also, it seems to me that there are forms of Christianity that are particularly powerful in American context that imagine they inhabit a no when. And what I mean is they seem to assume that they are sort of immune to history. They are above the flux and fray of time. And that somehow, because they believe in God and are related to God and receive revelation from God, that they themselves have a purview that is above the sweep of history, which is why then they are unaffected by it. And I think that is a very, well, first of all, I think it's a myth. I think it's an utter illusion for any creature to imagine that they could have that sort of standpoint above the flux and fray of time. I also think because of that, it's also very hubristic and, and borders on a kind of idolatry. But what's most dangerous about it then is it's utterly naive. And it, is, it has no serious accounting of its own blind spots, of the ways that it is indebted to particular histories and it's therefore it's not at all attuned or attentive to what it's left out. Does it, if that makes sense, it does make sense. And sort of diagnosing these blind spots, I found to be a really valuable part of your book, How to Inhabit Time. And so, how pervasive? As we're moving to our first break, I want to ask: How pervasive do you see this kind of blind spot Christianity to be in the American scene? Is it the majority of Christianity? Is it a minority, significant minority, but a minority? Or how do you see the numbers breaking down there? Or do you have a sense of that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I don't want to veer into the sociologist lane. I, I, let me let me say it this way: I do think that it is a significant form of Christianity that does seem to also be shaping public perceptions in very significant ways. So it, maybe it's a very loud and influential minority, but I think you can see how it feeds into certain kinds of political sort of standpoints and movements. I think I would also say it feels like it is something that has grown in its influence. And, and in many ways, I think my book is trying to respond to the rise of more of that know-when Christianity. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's a popular speaker. He's written many award-winning books, and we've talked about some of those books here on the program. He is professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And today we're talking about his recent book, How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of dialogues, discussions, and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. 
We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's a popular speaker, and he's written many award-winning books. We've talked about several of those books here on the program. He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, we're talking about his recent book, How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. Before the break, we were talking about different fractures of Christianity, particularly in America, where there's a certain type of Christian approach to history that has what you call the view from no when. It seeks to be immune from history and to rise above history. One of the ways that you talk about this with your readers in your book, How to Inhabit Time, is you begin to look at various philosophers. You look at Martin Heidegger and you look at Georg Hegel. And one of the things that struck me about some of these philosophical characterizations of history is that they operate almost like set narratives. Hegel is a great example, where Hegel's analysis of history is basically we understand structurally what the end point is going to be, and we're simply in a mechanistic movement towards that end point. So every war, every conflict can be understood as part of this larger picture, but we know what the last sentence will be. And then you take that and you talk about dispensationalism in Christianity that wants to look at Christian history in the same way, to look not at uncertain outcomes, but rather that ultimately the outcome is certain, and those who are on the side of right are moving towards this inevitable end. Now, these are all my words, not yours, so I may have mischaracterized something along the way. First of all, I'd like to invite you to correct anything that I've said improperly here and say it better, but then I'd like for you to begin to develop for us how, in this particular case, dispensationalism as one form of Christianity is an example of this kind of closed-ended history that you're talking about in your book, How to Inhabit Time. Yeah, we might disagree a little bit about Hegel. And, I, and there are debates about how to read Hegel on this score. I actually think it's less the sort of pre-programmed march of the machine. That's not an uncommon reading. I think it's not the best reading. Uh, one of the reasons I find Hegel actually an interesting antidote to a lot of these disordered forms of Christianity is because he has a deep sense of the contingency of history, actually, which is why we always have to be doing the hard work of discerning just what the Spirit is doing in history. You can't just read it off the agenda or the program, so to speak. But we, we can save that for a pint later in Chicago. That's, that'll be an interesting uh, philosophical cafe conversation. The dispensationalist piece, I think, and, and I, I'm not sure how much you, your listeners, I'm sure, are very sharp. When, we, when we're talking about dispensationalism, we mean kind of less behind Christianity. Uh, yeah, why don't you take ready. a moment and say a little bit about that just so that my listeners are oriented. That would be helpful. Yeah, yeah. So dissensationalism is it's actually a, a very common outlook in American Protestantism, particularly more fundamentalist and evangelical modes of it. And it's really sort of a late uh, development in Christian history. It starts in the 19th century. And it is this view that God divided time up into these chunks that they think of as dispensations of time. And the culmination of it is that sort of apocalyptic scenario we associate with left behind movies where a rapture happens and some people are skyhooked out of history and time and then a terrible tribulation and a millennium is coming. It is not actually the majority report of the Christian tradition, but it is a significant popular movement in American Christianity. And it's actually the form of Christianity through which I myself came to Christianity. So probably, you know, there's a bit of interior polemic that I'm working on here. What intrigues me about it, it actually is a view of history that assumes it stands outside of history. And it is also characterized by a deep, almost antipathy or skepticism or aversion to history's own movement. So, for example, in the dispensationalism, basically the end you're waiting for is to escape in the rapture because the entire earth and cosmos is being burned and destroyed. 
It is not a rosy picture. But what that means is dispensationalism only expects decline in history. It only expects things to get worse and worse. And it actually doesn't think that the spirit is really truly a foot in the history of the church. So there's a, such a, on the one hand, there's a kind of hubristic sense that they know exactly what's going to happen. On the other hand, there's almost a demonization of history itself as just the devil's work. And we are waiting for the cosmos to end. And that seems to me, first of all, it is wholly contrary to a rich, long legacy of Christian approaches to history. And it's also, I think, proven itself to be dangerous, at least irresponsible, because it doesn't give us any account of why we should be invested in the cultures and institutions and neighbors who are alongside us in time, other than to offer them tickets to the escape pod of the rapture. So to me, it is, it's such a... Um, disordered and disorienting way of thinking about our inhabitation of time. As you're giving that answer, the image that came to me is I had an anthropologist friend in college who used to talk to me about ancient map making, and you would explore a territory, but there would always be a region beyond which you had yet seen. And oftentimes on maps, they would then mark those unseen portions with here there be dragons. And the notion that beyond the edge of the known is simple terror. And it strikes me that what you're describing here in this particular type of Christianity, where the Schofield chain reference Bible and dispensationalism is one example that we're talking about, it literally is sort of taking those unknown areas of the map, lopping them off and saying, we're just going to stay in the known areas and stay on this path. And if we stay on this path, then we will be protected through the ages, and when the dragons come, we'll be saved. Now, I may be oversimplifying things here, but as I say that, does that sound right, or would you say it in a different way? No, I think it's something like that, except it's also combined with a really crazy and intricate confidence in knowing exactly what the end of history looks like. And there are whole conferences and books and systems that are bent on like kind of parsing out. Interestingly, there are a lot of dragons in that end. So it, it actually has this sort of ungrounded overconfidence in knowing what the end of history looks like and then zero investment in the actual unfurling and unfolding of history. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I, I don't, I don't want to derail the conversation, but one of the things that is kind of curious is that that kind of purview, dispensationalism, this kind of end times fixation, often aligns with then another form of disordered relationship to time and history that I call primitivism. We could also maybe call it originalism, but this is now a way of looking back where Christians in this form, it's usually allied with a kind of revivalism. And so what happens is, in fact, it, it works like this. The inventors of dispensationalism in the 19th century basically thought the entire history of Christianity had either never properly seen this or had forgotten it. And so what they are doing is recovering that primitive, original insight and deposit left us by the first century apostles and they are leapfrogging back to recover the primitive origins of Christianity. And when they frame it that way, all the intervening centuries of Christian history are deemed, well, they would say Ichabod, this Hebrew word from the prophet, where, where it means like God has left the building. Like, like, and it's such a fundamentally un-Catholic way of thinking about history because it basically refuses to believe Jesus' promise that the Spirit would continue to guide us into all truth across time. So there's these weird combinations where you get this end times fixation, which thinks it knows exactly how the end is going to go, but doesn't really care about being invested in history. And then you get this dismissal of all prior Christian history that has come down to us 
except for the Bible. And we will leapfrog back and recover that ourselves. Both of them characterized by a kind of hubris that I think becomes a bit dangerous. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He is professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We've had him on the show before to talk about several of his award-winning books. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. I'm so glad that you went from this kind of forward-looking approach to Christianity And I love the phrase that you used. You said that particular way of looking at the future has an intricate confidence about the end times. I think that that's so well phrased. But then you pivoted and you said, and also we can see Christianities that look backwards with a certain kind of framing as well, and used several words, primitivism, revivalism, originalism. One thing that comes up in your book, How to Inhabit Time, as you analyze this kind of backward-looking Christianity— is you stress that the Christian that looks backward this way is always editing the past and is always cutting out aspects of the past and creating, if you will, a kind of nostalgia for the past that maybe never actually existed. Now, again, I am paraphrasing, so feel free to say it differently, but also I'd love to hear more about that. No, that's exactly right. As we were saying earlier, in a sense, if you are human and if you're part of a human community, you can't not be related to the past. It's a question of whether you recognize it and then how you relate to the past. And I think another sort of disordered form of remembering is what I would call nostalgia. And nostalgia is a way of remembering that is selective and is actually a form of active forgetting. Because what what happens in nostalgia is I create a romanticized version of some ideal past. And the way I am relating to the past is I really think we just need to turn back the clock and recover this golden age, this romanticized era, this ideal time or period, however, wherever we might locate it. Somebody might put it in the 1950s. Somebody might put it in the 1450s, whatever it might be. But the problem with nostalgia is not that it remembers. It's that it's what it doesn't remember and actively chooses to forget. There's a line in the book that I just love from Astley Cherry Gerard, who, who was with Shackleton on his tragic Antarctic journey. And he says, so much of the trouble of this world is caused by memories, for we only remember half. And it's the half we forget that gets so dangerous. And I think, I think nostalgia is such a powerful drug on offer in our cultural moment right now in, in Christian forms, in religious form. But I also think you can see politicized forms of it. The, 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 the entire ideology of so-called making America great again, as if it, it was a recovery of a time, is an active forgetting of how terrible those times were for so many. It's like somebody's watching, do you remember that series Mad Men? I do. Uh, television yes. series, right? It's pretty, pretty groundbreaking and in the history of television. Gorgeous aesthetic. You could see how everybody was taken with it. But the only people who could look back at that and say, oh, those were the days, are the white men who were censured experience. Right? Any woman is seeing that they are ground underfoot and the complete absence of people of color is part of the story. That's exactly who's excluded from that world. I think nostalgia is such a dangerous idolatry for us. You can see how religious communities are particularly prone to it because in, in every religious tradition, I would say especially in the Abrahamic religions, there is an injunction to remember, of course. But the point of remembering is more like Baldwin's reckoning and confrontation. It's not just romanticizing and pining for some golden age. The whole point of prophetic remembering 
is a kind of reckoning and confrontation and grateful inheritance of what has been handed down so that we can be propelled into a new future. The point of remembering is actually to hope. It's not just to recover and walk backwards. One thing that strikes me in all that you're saying, and I, I'm very captivated by the way that you're thinking about this, but at one point you talked about nostalgia being like a drug. And when you said that, my mind flashed to something that I saw recently, that a study has come out about the sleep drug Ambien. And the report said Ambien doesn't actually help you sleep. It helps you forget the hours you were not sleeping. And and I as as I hear you talking about nostalgia, but I can't help but think about exactly that, that we've got, a, and this is my phrasing, not yours, but a kind of narcotized Christianity that looks backwards and forgets the times that it was allied with empire and forgets the times that it was acting in a violent or chauvinistic way and simply remembers all the good stuff. Now, when I make that characterization, am I overplaying the hand or am I hearing what you're saying? No, that's exactly it. That, by the way, is really unsettling. <laughs> and one of the things I would add then, so I, I completely agree with the way you're framing it. In some ways, it is particularly powerful for people to romantically imagine a past that they never experienced. So, for example, I was having a conversation with a friend the other night and we were talking about, I don't want to veer out of my lane too far here, but we were talking about the fascination with the Latin mass. And what struck him, and he, my, my friend is Roman Catholic, is what struck him is it was not people like him in his 70s. It's actually young people who were probably born in the 80s who are fascinated with this recovery of what they think is an authentic pre-Vatican II form of Roman Catholic faith. But they've never lived it, which is, Probably why it's easier to romanticize that ideal in a way. So I, I think that's part of its narcotic effects is it holds out a tantalizing form of idealism as a memory. And that seems to me a powerful temptation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's a popular speaker who has written many award-winning books, including On the Road with St. Augustine, You Are What You Love, Desiring the Kingdom, and Who's Afraid of Postmodernism. He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he holds the Gary and Henrietta Biker Chair in Applied Reformed Theology and Worldview. He was the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine from 2013 to 2018 and is now editor-in-chief of Image, a quarterly journal at the intersection of art, faith, and mystery. Today we're talking about his recent book, How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of discussions and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's a popular speaker who has written many award-winning books, and he's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, we're talking about his recent book, How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. So far in the conversation, we've been talking about uh, a, a sort of diagnosis of what you call disordered forms of Christianity. But your book, How to Inhabit Time, is not simply a diagnostic analysis of what has gone wrong with the Christian faith. You also offer a very positive alternative to this kind of nostalgic and intricately confident approach to past and future. And part of what struck me about the way that you reconceptualize a more healthy form of Christianity is you lean into limitation. You lean into, for example, the fact that as I love something, I am of necessity loving something that will change over time and eventually may decay or die, or someone who may pass away from my existence. And you also talk about being aware of the movement of time, in particular the movement of seasons. And that's where I want to turn now. 
Talk to us about how Christianity can be enriched by understanding the limitations and the shifts between seasons. Yeah, I'm so glad you note the build of that, because you're right that in many ways, the constructive, I hope generative aspect of the book is really an encouragement to receive our mortality as gifts, to sort of learn how to live into our temporality as creatures. I think my entire career has really been interested in trying to think through the implications of God's affirmation of the goodness of creation. And I think so many forms of hubris are trying to escape our finitude, to overcome our creaturehood. And I think this notion of the fact that we as temporal creatures are seasonal creatures, part of what I mean is that I think it is very natural and common and probably, I think, universally human that we don't just experience time as the sort of tick-tock linear sequence of chronology. We experience time in chunks that we can call seasons because they are an era, micro eras within our lives that sort of ask something particular of us, focused for us. We need to work through something in a season in our lives. And part of what I hope is liberating about that is to realize that it is very natural and good to go through seasons where I don't always know how it's going to end, but I could trust that it's going to end. I really like what you just said, and I want to build on it because this openness to an uncertain future is in some ways part of when we look at, for example, interpretations of the passion of Jesus Christ. There's a real active theological question about how much Jesus knew was going to happen next after the cross. And there are certain types of Christianity that want to say, no, he knew everything, and therefore this was really not a risk or a gamble in any stretch of the imagination. There are other interpretations of Christianity, those that I find more exciting, that say he gambled everything in that moment on what might or might not happen next, and the openness to an uncertain future is what makes the limitation of the cross, such a beautiful reconciling act. Now, when I make that comparison, I've just leapt to Calvary. I wonder what you think about that and whether this is following what you're placing here in our conversation or whether you push us in a different direction. No, no, I think that's exactly right. And to see, by the way, the incarnation of God in Christ is such a linchpin of this entire sort of argument, if you will, or invitation, because It's so utterly unique to imagine that the God who created time is the same God who then gives himself over to time in the incarnation, submits submits God's self to time. And I think that is part of the remarkable mystery. And then so to see even, yeah, the passion as its own kind of sees in the life of Christ is a remarkable way of thinking about it. I guess probably personally, what I... I wish I had this insight early because I feel like as a younger man, looking back, oftentimes you can't see that you were going through a season until it's twilight, right? You can't, it's sort of retrospectively as something is sort of congealing and coalescing and probably transitioning to something else that you realize, oh, that was a chapter of my life. Now that chapter could have been eight or 10 or 12 years long for a lot of people, for example, go through a season of child weary. And it's an intensive, remarkably arduous and joy-filled and sleepless season. But it's like a chunk of a life, a chapter of a life where my calling has kind of focus about it. But when you're in the midst of a season, when you're right in the thick in the middle of it, you don't often recognize it as the season. <laughs> and so then it feels like you can't see any light. You're not sure what's at the end of the tunnel. You're not even sure there's any way out. 
And if we can come into our lives with a little more expectation or attunement, perhaps, an openness to say, okay, wait a second, I keep experiencing this thing. This is asking a lot of me. I'm undergoing something here. Maybe this is the focus for a season in my life. And now I need to discern what is God asking of me? What do I need to give myself over to here? What is what am I called to in this moment? It's not going to be forever. It's not the only thing I will ever have to do, but it is my now. And it is the way I'm experiencing God now. And it's the what I need to make myself available to now and see where God is taking. So there's a lot there for us to begin to think about. But what I really love about this is that you're offering an invitation to readers to not have all the answers. And I'm thinking, you know, I work with my students. Many of my students are going on to be various types of pastoral companions. They're going to be chaplains or they're going to be, they're going to be walking with people as spiritual directors. And one of the things that I try and remind them again and again is it's not their job to take over somebody else's story. And if they have doubts, to re-narrate their doubts into assurance, or if they have anger, to re-narrate their anger into reconciliation but rather to literally sit with the stories and let the discomfort be there. Now, as I'm saying this to you, I'm hearing an echo in what you're saying of Christians need to learn to live with limitation and discomfort because that is part of the way that we are seasonal. Now, when I make that comparison and pull that parallel to the practical teaching of those that are going to go on in pastoral fields— Is this really something that we should be carrying into pastoral formation, or do you see a sort of different set of toolkits that are needed for that kind of application? No, no, no. This is exactly it. This is exactly it. And and a couple facets of it. First, I would say is so much of receiving the gift of our mortality is also accepting the humility that comes with not being above the fray, not seeing it all, not being able to master it with my insight at any particular moment. So I think it's, there's, and that requires a deep sense of entrusting ourselves to the God who is with us in every season. But what I think is pastorally significant here is, for example, I think it is incredibly liberating for somebody to learn and discover and hear affirm that you will not always experience God the same way across a lifetime. And I say this is important because I think, I think especially for those, you know, everybody has different journeys and pathways, but I think a lot of maybe younger people or maybe college age students and so on, In ways that are entirely natural and expected, they might have a very intense, exuberant, emotional experience of and relationship with God. But if in that moment you imagine that any authentic relationship with God has to always look like that, then your 50-year-old self is probably going to be in trouble. <laughs> because what, I don't know what your experience has been like, David, but I, I would say in my intervening years, I have realized that there are seasons of a life where the way I experience God almost feels like distant and yet also assured. And my younger, exuberant, emotional, kind of Pentecostal self would never have been able to see that way of relating to God as good and true and beautiful and authentic. And yet I would say myself that has undergone that season knows something about God's steadfastness that my younger self in that season did not. And so I I hope it's liberating for people to say it's not always going to be like this. I'm reminded of a conversation I had recently in another interview with Reverend Marianne McKibben Dana. And one of the things that we talked about was when children are going through confirmation in a church setting, one of the things that she found very powerful was to say, you're not promising that this is the story that you are going to affirm for the rest of your life. Rather, you're promising that this is the story that you will wrestle with for the rest of your life. 
I wonder if it, 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 when I say it that way, does that land in kind of what you're saying or would you say it in yeah, a different no, way? Yeah, no, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. The other thing that I think is important here, and I mentioned it in the book, is this is where community is so significant and important. And while I don't think we can ever get above the fray of history or have a standpoint outside of time, I do suggest that there's one way that you can almost cheat and it's to have friends who are older than you. And in some sense, right, when you have multi-generational friendships, and this might be related to the work of spiritual directors and the kind of pastoral formation that you're talking about. When I hear from co-pilgrims, fellow pilgrims who are 30 years ahead of me, in some ways they are reporting from the future because they have undergone seasons that maybe I haven't even yet seen coming. And if I can get to a place of humbly listening and hearing from them, it does create a possibility of expectation in me so that then when I am in the midst of that season, first of all, I remember them naming that as a possibility and I don't have to get too anxious, right? I can remember, oh, okay, I have this friend. I remember she told me about being here and I remember her telling me how she came through. And I think that kind of gift that we can give to one another of sharing our own experience of seasons in our lives is a little bit, it's almost like time travel, but it's a gift of uh, spiritual expectation. There's one other aspect of this that I want to make sure listeners hear about, because we've been talking for the last few minutes about limitation. You've used in at several points this phrase, the gift of our mortality. And so what we're talking about is an embrace of a certain kind of loss. But at the very end of your book, in the epilogue, you also meditate on passage from Joel chapter 2, and I'm going to paraphrase it. It basically says, I'm going to repay to you all the years that the locusts have eaten. I'd like to invite you to meditate with us now on how that phrase speaks to you in light of what we've been saying about the gift of mortality and limitation and loss as part of a healthy Christianity. Yeah, I think what amazes me about God's redemption, transformation, salvation, is God does not just offer a reset button. Do you know what I mean? The, the, what, what happens in the mystery of salvation is not a blank slate. It's not like, oh, you get, a, it's not like a reset button in like a video game where you get a new character and now you start over. What's even more incredible is that when Jesus says you must be born again, what he means is you, me, with all my history, with all my brokenness, with all my failures, with all my hurts and traumas and wounds, God is going to take that I, that Jamie, and renew and transform and redeem, which is why it is not a reset, it is a resurrection. And as Jesus, as we know from the, the sort of first fruits of Jesus' resurrection, even the resurrected one bears scars. And I just, I guess I would testify that my own experience of God's grace has been not that he effaced or erased my past, but that he has actually sort of re-narrated it and deployed it in me in a way that I hope has made me empathetic to people who've experienced those things, that has made me attuned to, you know, because I used to be arrogant, maybe I'm trying to work on humility in new ways. I think it's remarkable that God gathers up all of us, even the broken fragments, and makes this stunning mosaic that he's kind of waiting to show the world. Well, James K.A. Smith, I have to say, I got into your book, How to Inhabit Time, with a lot of expectation because I've read your work before. I've had long conversations with you about your work, and I knew that you were going to enliven my mind and give me new ways of thinking about things that had been confusing or problematic to me. I had no idea how applicable, how useful, 
and how invigorating reading this book would be. But as with your other works, your prose is lively, but the ideas that underlie that prose are so deep and resonant, and you communicate them in such a clear manner. I know that my listeners, if they read your book, they are going to come away with new insights, fresh ways of thinking about their own walk of faith. I am so grateful for the time and process that went into writing this book. I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. David, that means more than you could know. I really deeply appreciate that. You are a very thoughtful reader, and so it's, it gives me great gratitude to hear you say that. Thank you very much. We've been speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's a popular speaker who has written many award-winning books, including On the Road with St. Augustine, You Are What You Love, Desiring the Kingdom, and Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he holds the Gary and Henrietta Biker Chair of Applied Reformed Theology and Worldview. He was the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine from 2013 to 2018, and he's now editor-in-chief of Image, a quarterly journal at the intersection of art, faith, and mystery. We've been speaking today about his recent book, How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.